My recollection is that I got the subpoena when I picked up my mail in the office. And I remember opening it and having this massive adrenaline release, like really stressed, just really wondering, like, am I getting sued? Who's suing me? What did I do wrong? And it had been many, 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 many months, enough that I had to really go back and look at the actual chart and really try to recall what the events were. And so it ended up being this school-age gal who was developmentally delayed and came in with this injury on her finger. And the family reported that there was another child on the bus who was known for biting. And so it was a completely unwitnessed event because the bus was just full of kids that were developmentally delayed. But the family came to the conclusion that it must have been this other child that bit her. But in my objective exam, all I could say was that, yes, there are, you know, two linear superficial injuries to the finger. And you can't really say one way or the other. So then I ended up calling risk management, who directed me and said, okay, you need to call the DA. They'll instruct you further on the deposition details. We convened on that day, and so, you know, both sides, and then the DA hands me the file. Then they just started to ask me questions about, you know, what I saw on the day. They asked me about the story. And then both the sides started to ask questions about, did I think the injury was consistent with a bite versus just like a random injury on the bus where she might have scratched herself on, you know, the back of a nail or something? And that went on for a little bit. I remember telling them, I can't say I wasn't there. I can only give you the description of what the injury looks like. How it got caused is not something that I can decide. And they probably weren't very happy with that, but um, (laughs) there wasn't really anything else I could do. My recollection is that we spent a long time parsing out the difference between abrasion and superficial laceration. I remember thinking it was such an inane conversation, like it's completely inconsequential. But for them, I think they maybe felt like I can prove it one way or the other if I can get her to say it's a laceration versus an abrasion. So I remember going round and round about those definitions. But but again, just being like actually so surprised at their lack of understanding of a lot of the terminology. Like we were having to go like almost line by line through the physical exam, through the history and explain these pieces to them. And, And even just the process of the evaluation, you know, who would have seen her first? And then what would the nurse's role have been? And what would your role have been? And, you know, that sort of thing. The pressure to make me say something that would support one side versus the other was really palpable. This is Ian Pulse with your hosts, Sarah Medeiros and Julia Magana. They made me say the earth is flat. Oh, man, I get palpitations just hearing that story. (laughs) (laughs) I can completely imagine being in her shoes. Heck, I have been in those shoes. In the last episode about Legal 101, we learned that criminal and civil legal proceedings have a different burden of proof. Criminal has to prove beyond reasonable doubt and civil more likely than not. And there are three basic types of witnesses. The most common witness type is the percipient witness or fact witness. The witness who observes something in their normal life, like an ED physician caring for a child in a car accident, testifying to the history they took, their findings, and the care of that patient. The second witness category is a police officer who shares their observations in their professional and therefore normal job. No opinions, just facts and observations. And lastly, the expert witness who combines these observations and facts with an educated opinion. 
And just to say it out loud again, our conversations today are with real lawyers and we are real doctors, but we are not your doctors or lawyers. So don't take this as either legal or medical advice. So Julia, you said you've been in those shoes. Tell me what it's like being a recipient witness. You know, my first time being subpoenaed was when I was a fellow and I opened up a letter back (laughs) in those days. I got a paper copy and the subpoena was very not clear to me. And in fact, I actually thought I was being sued. So I contacted my local legal team and they reassured me, no, you are not being sued. (laughs) But in fact, somebody else is suing a big box store and they want you to come and be a percipient witness or somebody who just talks about what you saw and did. So after my heartbeat slowed down to a normal sinus rhythm, I proceeded to learn more about the role of the percipient witness. And once I knew more, while it was still nerve wracking to be on record, it actually was a lot more reassuring. It wasn't quite as scary because you are just there for the facts that you know, and you don't have to talk about what you don't know or aren't sure about. It's just what you did and what you saw. You are truly not in the hot seat in the same way. Yeah, I guess that's not quite as stressful, but any kind of subpoena still makes me really nervous. (laughs) (laughs) So let's go back and rejoin the conversation that Julia and John Rose had with Chris Orr from the Sacramento DA's office as they dive into the role of percipient witness. So a lot of physicians, when they get these and they're realizing like, I don't remember this and, and you're realizing you're a percipient witness for your care. And they may be saying, look, they can just read my chart. They can subpoena the chart, throw it in the record. Why do I actually have to go talk about my chart? And that's a fair question. I think a lot of people feel that way also because they don't really want to go to court. You all feel very comfortable in the, in the hospital with the patients, doing medical tests, and very uncomfortable uh, in the courtroom environment, just as attorneys probably feel very uncomfortable coming to hospitals. And so I think a lot of people are like, I don't want to do this. I think a lot of reasons why they can try to not have to do it. In a lot of situations, we might be able to use some of the records. Uh, We certainly want the records. But the main reason that we can't just introduce that pile of papers is that under the law, it's called hearsay. Uh, Hearsay uh, is defined in a legal sense as any statement that's made out of court that's offered for the truth. Uh, So when you write down in your medical notes, uh, the patient complained of pain in their leg, that is a writing, it's a statement, is made over here at the hospital. And if the DA is trying to prove that the patient had pain in their leg, by definition, it's hearsay. And the law doesn't allow us to introduce hearsay into court. Going back to the Constitution again, the Constitution uh, requires that the parties be able to see hear, observe, and cross-examine the witnesses uh, in the case. And we can't cross-examine a piece of paper that says uh, the patient had pain to their leg. You know, the DA may want to ask or the fence may want to ask uh, if we just introduce that paper, well, doctor, did you actually touch the leg? Did he, did he grimace when you touched the leg? Um, was he laughing when he said, oh, my leg hurts? Were there other things that would lead you to believe he wasn't telling you the truth when he said his leg was causing pain? With that blank piece of paper, we don't get to ask those follow-up questions to be sure that that statement is truthful. And so the hearsay rule many times will prevent us from introducing it. I say many times because there are exceptions to the hearsay rule. There's a In law school, they spend forever, it seems like, going over all the exceptions to the hearsay rule. And one of the main exceptions to the hearsay rule is something called business records. So um, if somebody is doing something as part of their normal course of business and they do it at or near the time of the event, you know, you're at the hospital, you're prescribing uh, some sort of medicine to a patient or you're putting a patient into a cast um, and you document that in your records you observe an x-ray that shows that someone has a broken bone or an MRI that shows some sort of medical issue, and you write that down in your records at or near the time of the event, which you, I'm sure, all probably do. That's probably what you normally do. You document in your notes. And those records are kept in a trustworthy and accurate fashion and relied upon by 
people in your field uh, as medical business records, the law actually does allow us to get those records into evidence in some situations. Now, you can imagine that some things in medical records are made at or near the time. Some things are not really testimonial. They're just your notes about what you've actually observed. Some things may be opinions. Some things may be statements that other people conveyed, which end up inside your medical records. So there can be other layers of hearsay inside those medical records. And so it's not always easy that we just get to put the records uh, into evidence. And then the other really hard part is that if we just introduce medical records, we have a pile of records coming into evidence. What is the jury supposed to do with that? I've seen medical records over the last 25 years, and I have a hard time making sense of them myself. I have horrible writing. My mom said I could have been a doctor. But it's really hard to understand uh, the shorthand that sometimes ends up in medical records, the words that end up in medical records, and the concern by both the parties, both prosecution and defense or civil attorneys and the court, is that we're going to misinterpret it. We're going to put more meaning to something that maybe you ruled out as meaning nothing, but we read it on page 56 of the medical records. Well, yeah, but on 58, there's some kind of notation that actually puts that in perspective, which means it doesn't mean what we think it means. And so the goal of the court system is to make sure that we're doing justice and doing things right. And so sometimes while a medical record may be fine to prove that somebody had a broken arm, it may not be fine necessarily to show that someone had uh, abusive head trauma uh, because there may be some other explanation or some other test that maybe provide uh, more insight as to what that notation in the records actually means. So when somebody gets that subpoena, what's the first thing that they should do? Toss it in the trash? And <laughs> what yeah. should their actions be? They absolutely should take a deep breath uh, <laughs> and relax. It's not going to be that bad. But the really first thing they should do is contact the person that sent them the subpoena. You know, if DAs and defense attorneys and civil attorneys are doing their job, hopefully they've provided this weeks in advance. Sometimes things arise where we're doing it a couple days in advance or a day in advance. And we're not doing that because we're trying to mess up people's lives, uh, but we're really trying to make sure we, we're proving our case. Many times that phone call to the DA uh, or the person that subpoenaed the person will put that doctor at ease because they're going to realize that the goal of that subpoena is for ensuring that justice will be done in a case. Maybe it'll be that the DA will say, I don't actually need you. I'm just putting you on uh, standby in case the defense says whatever they might say. I don't want to show up to court and not be prepared. So sometimes I send out subpoenas. I do send out subpoenas all the time to people I probably am never going to call. But that's because I cannot come back from court at 5 o'clock at the end of a day and go, man, I wish I had subpoenaed that doctor for tomorrow. Versus if I send out a subpoena, the doctor calls me. I'm going to say, I'm going to put you on telephone standby. I'm going to let you know when I actually need you. This is the issue. So for the doctor, they should be saying, what is being contested here? Are they contesting that there was a broken leg? Are they contesting that there's abusive head trauma? Or is the issue some sort of statement that maybe was taken in those medical records that the suspect provided? Many times we make the worst of it in our minds when really it's maybe something very small that the party is trying to introduce in evidence. Okay, I would add here, when you get that subpoena, even before you call and speak to the lawyer, make sure that you have clear instructions from your own legal team. If you work for a hospital, likely you have a team of lawyers that you can access. It's okay to give them a call and review what you can and cannot say. I know our subpoenas here at UC Davis have very clear instructions, but if anything is not clear, I contact our team all the time. They can help me problem solve. And you need to make sure that you comply with HIPAA. Please don't print out records without knowing clearly what you are doing. I never print out charts to give to any lawyers. The best practice is to not bring any medical charts at all and have the team that subpoenaed you hand you your records from the hospital. 
If you print out something and take notes on it, know that it can be requested to turn it in as evidence. The team that subpoenas you can give you the copy of the notes if you need to refer to them. And I know I always have to refer to them on the stand. Yeah, and don't be afraid to ask your colleagues. I have found it really helpful to talk to senior colleagues. For example, Dr. John Rose has been my go-to in these kinds of situations. Yeah, he is really great at all of this. Now let's jump back into it. When that person isn't under subpoena or they're resistant to their subpoena is the more likely time that it's going to get more difficult for both all sides. Uh, when the defense or a party realizes the other person doesn't have their witness available, they're never going to stipulate to those medical records. They're never going to agree to introduce that evidence without the witness actually coming. Uh, many times I've been in trial and the defense will be like, no, I'm not agreeing to that. I'm not agreeing to that. I'm like, okay, well, then I'll have the doctor come here tomorrow and then the doctor can explain it. They're like, okay, well, maybe we can work something out. Um, but if I don't have someone in the wings to bring into court tomorrow, they're certainly never going to want to work out uh, those those difficulties. For a doctor, call the DA, speak to the person that's subpoenaing them, ask them what the issue is, ask them if there are specifics in the medical records, be sure that the DA or subpoenaing party actually has all the records. It's quite likely that most of the time we do not. So there may be something that resolves the issue and additional records that you may actually have. And so if you communicate with them about what it is they're looking for and what their expectations are of what you would be asked about is probably the number one thing. And then, you know, most parties are always going to do the most they can to accommodate your schedule. Uh, we don't want to inconvenience the parties. And I say that for all parties, really. I say it, we don't want to inconvenience doctors. I don't want you all in a courthouse versus being here at the hospital treating people. But I say it for our DNA analysts, too. We don't want them out of the lab when they could be back analyzing DNA. And I also say it for the majority of our witnesses, which is average people, people that work $15 an hour jobs. We as society, to keep you know the government and legal system going, require people to take off their job as a janitor or as a restaurant worker uh, as part of their commitment to society to come down and testify. So for those people, I say the same thing. We're going to do the best we can. If, if that means we put you on after lunch or that means we put you on first thing at 9 a.m., if I can, I always want to accommodate that. I realize that doctors have patients and schedules and those sort of things. So when a doctor is being subpoenaed by a DA or defense counsel, most people really want to accommodate that. So um, letting them know your schedule and when is most easy for you to be able to take off that time is important. If you do that, most people are going to work with you. Sometimes people in professions will say, I can't come. I can't come ever. And I've got patients. I've got appointments. I've got things. I just can't come. And I try to be gentle. I try to say, well, you know, we, you really need it because this is part of being a civilized society, having a court system where we can actually prove things. Um, well, I, I, no one can take my patience. And then I have to kind of remind them gently, it's not a party invitation. We do actually need you to come to court. And if you got sick, you got COVID, or your child got sick, or your mother died, or something like that, somebody would cover your patients. And it's hard because you have hearts uh, that you put towards your patients and you have that professional um, commitment to your patients. But part of that commitment is actually being there through the rest of the process uh, and Part of having a civilized society is coming to court. So uh, if doctors uh, and medical professionals work with the DA, they will certainly, uh, and defense counsel too, I believe, will always uh, try to accommodate people's schedules. I have found exactly that if I reach out, uh, many times I, it's a lot of it's telephone standby. It can be, it's a small thing. And I realize, oh, I wasn't the doctor you wanted. You want this yeah. Y doctor. Yep. And, and the sooner I let you know, the faster it makes for everybody. And the court will take a lot of times witnesses out of order. So I've interrupted witnesses even for doctors, uh, knowing that I can, uh, you know, I have a police officer. Well, I can take that police officer who was on the stand at 4.30 and was continuing the next morning. I can take them off the stand for a few minutes, put the doctor on, get the doctor's testimony done, and put that officer who is kind of, that is their normal job to be in court on afterwards. So uh, judges have ability to 
uh, take witnesses out of order uh, if requested by the parties and often will. You were talking about the language, like when we're charting. Can you talk about the language or the things that are, are both that you like to see or things that you it's really awkward when you see it, things you don't <laughs> want to see? I mean, I think it would help all of us when we're charting and we're thinking about this. And I know it. this is a pretty high probability. I'm going to go to maybe go to trial on this. Um, can you help us with that? Absolutely. Yes. Um, one, I'd say the only way both in court and out of court that you could ever get in trouble is if it's not the truth. So if you're writing in your chart, um, you know, just be as accurate as possible. Things I like to see, I like to see when people have made statements, whether they may prove the case, they may not prove the case. Writing those sort of things down, those words coming out of someone's mouth as they're receiving medical treatment that are important to you, I like to see those. Those are helpful to us. If there are quotes, it's really nice if they're in quotes because uh, lawyers like to mess with words. And so if they're not in quotes, then it's going to be, well, did he really say this or did he kind of say something different than that? And so um, trying to be as accurate about what the person said or didn't say is helpful. Demeanor, um, how they're acting, those sort of things. If, if that's something that is important to you, uh, I like seeing that in notes. That's helpful to me. I've had many uh, abusive cases involving children where uh, there's documentation that the parents did not seem connected to their child, that they were uh, not um, noticing or didn't seem to be affected by the fact their child is basically dying. Um, those sort of observations in medical notes make it a whole lot easier for the doctor when I ask, can you tell me how the parent was acting um, when you told them that their their child was basically dying? And the notations help refresh that doctor's recollection so they can actually testify to it truthfully. If you think it's a case that actually is going to end up in court and you're making notations because you know that it's an important case that you want to have those notations there, I think that's good to put those details in. Because years from now, you're going to be asked to go to court. Court doesn't move fast. And so um, if you know that it's a big case and you know that you're probably going to get called in, I would say put as much detail as you can because, uh, you know, an average case maybe takes uh, – the average serious case maybe takes a year. A murder case takes two to three years to maybe get to trial. Some murder cases, we had one that took 10 years actually. It was a death penalty case, took 10 years to finally get to a trial. And sometimes cases may take even decades. Uh, recently, I, I tried the um, NorCal rapist case, and there were medical providers who collected vaginal swabs from women that were sexually assaulted in 1991 uh, and had notations in there about things that the women said, uh, acts that they described that the rapist did in their medical notes. And I was then calling them 30 years later to come into court and testify. What did you see? What did the victim tell you? Um, what did you observe? And so they obviously back in 1991 didn't expect it might take 30 years for a case to get resolved. Uh, in those serious cases, if you're really anticipating what are they going to ask me someday and what am I going to hopefully going to be able to remember, think about putting those into your notes so that uh, those can be there. I, I like that. And I think about for these cases, not only what am I going to say in court, but knowing that somebody like Chris or a police officer or somebody else is going to be reading these notes and looking for that to be able to help understand this case better. That's how I think about it, even before you get to court, because you want to just be overly explicit, overly clear. And many times that helps it resolve the case. Yeah. If it's clear in the notes that the doctors are going to come say, this is consistent with abuse or this is a really bad injury um, or there's admissions that are documented in those medical notes and we subpoena those medical notes, the first thing we have to do is give that all to the fence. So all those medical notes and records uh, with the documentation showing what the doctor's likely going to say on the stand goes over to the defense. That makes it a whole lot easier when they're talking to their client about whether to accept responsibility or not, uh, for them not to have to guess what the doctor is going to say. It helps all sides kind of know this is what's going to play out in court. And so when the DA is offering you a deal that's a little bit less to accept some responsibility, uh, you should strongly consider it. How should we prepare for court as a percipient witness when we get that subpoena? What are kind of the next steps after we get off the phone with you? I would think, uh, one, get, get your file and review your file. And at some point, make sure that the DA or the defense or whoever subpoenaed you 
has the same material. Uh, the worst thing you want to do, which would be is to show up to court and have more material than they do, uh, because at some point someone's going to say, what are you looking at? Can I see that? And they're going to realize that you have more and then there's going to be a, a delay because everyone's going to want to look and see what you have that we don't have. For looking at your notes, try to bring back uh, as much as you can in your memory about that. When you're looking at the notes, hopefully you'll have in mind what the issue is. Uh, hopefully the party who subpoenaed you will have told you this is what is an issue, whether it's the statements, whether it's the injuries, whether it's causation. And so you can begin looking at that. Have you a, a vivid memory of it? Then that'll be easier. If you don't have a vivid memory, you may want to let them know, hey, this is a case I don't really remember the details of. If you let your DA know that, they're going to be prepared to still get that evidence in. So there's, there's ways that we can get evidence in when you don't remember. Uh, the nurse from 1991 does not remember this sexual assault exam from 30 years prior. But I'm allowed to ask a series of questions to her in court, such as, would looking at your notes refresh your recollection? And if she looks at them and then it helps her remember, she can then put her notes down and say, yes, I actually remember talking to this woman in 1991 and this is what she told me and this is the procedure that I did. Uh, and she can talk about what she remembers. Many times, even looking at the notes won't help you actually remember. And if it doesn't help you remember, then the DA is going to have to, or the party subpoena is going to have to ask a different series of questions. Um, and so you're going to want to be prepared for those questions so that you can have thought about them. And the questions typically will go something like, did you write down these events in your notes when it was fresh in your mind? Did you um, record it accurately in your notes? And are they kept in a trustworthy fashion? And do you in the medical industry rely upon them? And do you currently not remember? At which point, the DA will actually probably get you to actually read your notes into the record. It's another hearsay exception that allows us to actually get in pieces of evidence that people don't actually remember anymore. Um, as long as it's something that was recorded accurately at the time, kept in trustworthy fashion, we can actually have you read them into the record. We can't introduce the physical pieces of paper under the law but we can actually have you read what you wrote back in the day. I think that brings up a really good point that I sometimes struggle with when there's like 52 injuries or a lot of that, you know, you got that 500 page stack of medical records that I then have to remember everything from. I may remember the case, but I may not remember all of those details. And I can't get up. And like you said, just read that whole medical record. How do you recommend that physicians prepare and know the relevant stuff and then refer back to their notes and go back and forth kind of in a smooth manner. I know some doctors, uh, specifically I can think of one, that, or hospitals actually write a medical note, which I think is uh, extremely helpful. It's a condensed version of uh, what you saw, what you observed, and what the actual uh, injuries are, uh, and I think what the treatment actually was in that specific case. That little four page document or so is extremely helpful for attorneys because it uh, helps us decipher those 500 pages of medical records. But also it's really good for the doctor in getting ready to go to court because they can go back to that medical note uh, and look at the descriptions of the major injuries that they observed and be able to talk about it. Some DAs are going to want you to go through all 52 injuries. If it's a serious enough case where there's a serious allegations uh, and there's lots of injuries, they may want you to do that. And so part of that preparation is asking, what are your expectations? Or do you, do you want to go through all 52 injuries? Or do you want me to describe there were 52 injuries and they were of this general type of nature? If they say they want to go through all 52 injuries, I would do one of two different things. One, maybe make a short summary. But if you're going to do that, you want to provide that to both parties ahead of time so that it doesn't stop the proceedings when you pull out your new note of a short summary. Or put all your records into a binder and put tabs on it. So you can literally go up to the stand and say, there are 52 injuries. Um, I can't recall each of them right now, but if I can look at my records, uh, I could describe them for you. And when you say those magic words, can I look at my records? The DA is going to say, would looking at that help you remember? And if it'll help you remember, the DA is going to say, go ahead and look at it. Does that refresh your recollection? And if it does, then you're going to get to look at that injury, close your binder, talk about it, and can you tell us about the next injury? 
And I look at my notes on that. You get to open your binder, look at that page, refresh yourself on it, and then talk about that next injury. And you could work your way all through 52 of them. Can you talk about um, what's helpful for when you have a witness you called or just in general, if you're, you know, certainly in criminal cases like this? I think I would actually rewind it back a little bit even before you get to the courtroom, which is when the detective shows up at your uh, office and says, can you please you know, tell me about this specific case. Can you tell me what you observed? Can you tell me what you saw? Can you tell me what your opinion is on this case? Detectives are looking for the final answer. Uh, but the practice of medicine is a practice. And sometimes you have theories and you have thoughts and you may are still doing tests. You're thinking about a process. If the detectives come and interview you too soon and you have a theory that it might be X and they come, they document you thought it might be X. And then later on, it actually is why. Well, you're going to spend probably an extra two hours explaining to the jury why you thought it was X. And, and we're going to have lots of discussion in court about why it was X because the defense attorney is going to say, this wasn't caused by a suspect. This was caused by X disease that was really rare. Well, and then you have to say, no, I actually ruled that out. Well, you ruled that out, but you told the detective this very well could be caused by X. And you could spend kind of a long amount of time uh, in court getting to a point that's kind of surreptitiously uh, to this, the same point. Um, so I think for detectives, for them, I always recommend that they tell you what your questions are. Don't make it a surprise uh, for you so they can um, have you prepared uh, before you even give your kind of initial statement to law enforcement. Uh, once uh, you've given that statement, um, some detectives will record it. Some detectives will just take notes. Um, if it's recorded, I recommend the detectives send it back to you so that you have it. So that you don't have to be surprised a year and a half or two years later about uh, one that it was recorded. But two, uh, you don't have to try to remember what you said back then. You can just listen to it and go, yeah, that's what I was thinking. And that was my thought process. If they don't record it, I recommend that because we don't know the legal or the medical jargon that uh, you're all talking about. When they write up the report, I recommend that they actually type it all up and send you a version of it and say, do I have this right? Did I capture what it was that you said? Because if they don't send it back to you and make sure that's accurate uh, and they just have their impression of it and it's not recorded, it gets sent off the DA who sends it off the defense. And now when you say something inconsistent in court, the defense attorney is going to say, that's not what you told the detective. When really it might just be the detective didn't quite understand what you were saying and got it wrong. Um, so recordings actually do protect all sides. I know doctors always get kind of anxious. Of, Why am I being recorded? Uh, you're being recorded so we can be sure that we're giving the defense and the DA the most accurate uh, you know, uh, capture of the information that you're sharing um, versus having it filtered through a detective trying to capture it. If they do do that filtering, they're just writing it without recording, I always recommend they send it back because there's inevitably things we're going to miss and say wrong as a detectives, and then it'll end up in a report. So when you're showing up to court, again, the number one rule uh, is just tell the truth. And uh, I've had uh, kids as young as four years old on the stand and people as old as 85 up on the stand, and I go through the same rules that I uh, would go through with law enforcement and with doctors. Uh, the number one rule is just tell the truth. Nothing you can say is going to get you in trouble if you just tell the truth. The next rule I, I give to every person that I put on the stand is if you know the answer, tell us the answer. Pretty straightforward. Don't beat around the bush. If you know the answer, tell us the answer. And if you don't know, it actually is 100% okay to say, I don't know. And we want you to say, I don't know. We don't want you to get up on the stand and guess as to something. Um, if you know it, you can say, I know. And if you, you don't know it, you say, I don't know. If you're estimating or you think you kind of have it in your mind, it's actually okay to say that. You like, I believe it's this. I'm not 100% sure. Um, that's not quite a guess, but it's at least giving us an idea that you're not 100% on it, but you, you have a pretty firm belief that's what it is. Um, so if you know the answer, tell us. If you don't know, tell us. Uh, the other thing I often tell little kids and even police officers and, and medical providers is that lawyers ask stupid questions. We ask stupid questions all the time. 
things come out of our mouth that we're trying to be articulate. We're trying to stand in front of a jury and actually have them have confidence that we know what we're talking about when we're learning about things in the medical world that we just learned maybe two or three days before, or maybe even in the hallway when you told us something and we're trying to say stuff. And so when we ask things that sound stupid, uh, you're the medical provider. And if you know what we're saying, say, just so I understand, is this what you're saying? And restate the question back uh, in an articulate way. And the DA will be relieved that you actually, or the, even the defense attorney will be relieved that you, you clarified the question. And the other group that will be re- really relieved is the jury uh, because they're like, what did he just ask? Uh, and so I, I tell people that DAs ask questions and attorneys and judges, we all ask questions that make no sense. Uh, one time I had a police officer come back to my office and he's like, I couldn't understand what you asked. I didn't understand that question. I'm like, but you answered it. He's like, well, I didn't want to look dumb. I'm like, okay, but if you didn't understand the question, that means the jury didn't understand the question. And that answer, I have no idea what it means now because you gave an answer to a question that no one understood the meaning of. So in court, when whatever party, whether it's the judge, defense attorney, um, ask you a question and you don't understand, just ask, can you please restate that a different way? Or if you think you have the gist of it, say, is this what you're asking? Especially as a, as a, a well-educated uh, medical provider, doctor, nurse, uh, you're going to be able to probably say it in a more articulate way and uh, you can ask, is this what you mean? Because that may help everyone understand what's going on from there. This is really key. Lawyers are generally bright people, but they haven't learned to speak medicalese. And so they often Google terms and then string them together, kind of like a Google translation, if you will. It's a direct translation, but it doesn't make actual medical sense. You may think you know where they're going with this strung together translation, but don't presume. Ask them to rephrase until the sentence actually makes sense. These are our terms, not theirs. They cannot and they will not manipulate our terms. Yeah, that's a good point. So take that breath, take a moment, trust yourself, and remember that they don't necessarily know what is most important in the medical context anyway. So that's why you're there, to help them understand what was important during your evaluation of the patient. Right. That beat is so key, Sarah, because this means that when either side asks you a question, pause. Don't answer right away because this allows time for the other side to object. And in some cases, it feels like it's objection, objection, objection. So you may not have to answer that question anyways. Also, taking a beat allows you to think through your own answer. You want to think through kind of the arc of the answer quickly to give the most accurate answer. And you are not responsible for the entire medical chart. You are responsible for your own part, what you saw and did. If you didn't write something down and can't remember it, just say so. Also, if you can't remember, you can say my typical practice is X, Y, Z, and this is what I normally do when I take care of a patient. My other tip is to just slow down and don't speak over other people. As you may guess, this is a super hard part of testifying for me. Uh, Slowing the rate of my speech down is super challenging. But the court reporter does not know our fancy medical terms. Most of the people in the court don't know our fancy medical terms. So I use medical terms and then explain what they are. So for example, I will say there's a left-sided frontal subdural hematoma which means blood on the top of the brain on the left side by the forehead. I show I know my terms, but then explain it for everyone else who did not attend medical school. Think about it how you would explain it to a family member or teach it like you do in many of your settings. In court, just be as courteous as you can to every person in there. Uh, My goal as as a DA is always to be the most reasonable person in the courtroom, the most calm, the most courteous, whether it's To the defendant on the stand, to a doctor on the stand, I try to be always especially uh, courteous. The jury notices that. Uh, As the the medical provider, the doctor providing testimony, uh, you get your pay that day no matter what happens. You know, it it doesn't matter the outcome of this case. So 
hopefully the same with detectives. They hopefully don't have a vested interest in this case. Our only vested interest is that the truth comes out. And so when you're listening to the questions, uh, whether it comes from either party, answer it with the same tone, without attitude. Even if it seems repetitious, the cross-examination goes on forever and you're frustrated by it, um, just be calm and provide the answer. Some medical professionals or experts will uh, look at the jury. I don't think that's necessary, but if you feel comfortable doing that, you can. Many times doctors are really educators. They're educating the jury about what they saw and helping them understand um, how it kind of applies to the specific case and the specific patient. Jurors don't understand all the wonders of medicine or the treatments, but um, you guys do this in your everyday profession. You break things down to people that are very ill, uh, their injuries. You break it down to family members who are seeing their loved ones, um, maybe in a terminal condition, uh, and you, who help them understand in basic terms. I think if you can do that, uh, the same thing you do at the bedside manner with a jury, um, everyone in the courtroom will really appreciate it. We we can't take the big, high-level chunks. We need it kind of broken down into small stuff uh, in the courtroom for people to understand. I'm glad you say it that way. That makes more sense because I'm happy to answer questions, but sometimes the question involves explaining something. I learned a while ago to use that carefully. You're basically having a conversation with whoever's asking you the questions. Have the conversation. It's usually under direct examination part where you want me to explain something and then I can be the, the teacher part of it. But that's a, a wonderful way to kind of look at that issue. And direct examination is always different. So no matter which party, whether it's a civil case or whether it's a criminal case, uh, the laws actually require us to an ask open-ended questions. So I can't say, isn't it true you observed a broken bone on January 14, 2019? I have to say, doctor, could you tell us um, on this January 14th, whether you saw a patient? Did you treat that patient? What did you treat that, tra treat that patient for? What did you see? What was that treatment? On cross-examination, the defense uh, or who's ever doing cross um, can ask those leading questions and then go straight to the point that they are trying to elicit. And that is a time period where any witness has to be just a little more careful about what it is they're answering because the party asking the questions can put extra facts into that question and the witness has to be listening and say, well, you know, part of that's correct, part of that isn't correct, or no, that's not correct, can I explain? So that they're not violating rule number one, which is always tell the truth. So you really have to be on your toes. I think on cross-examination, uh, ideally no one's trying to trick you, but even though they're not trying to trick you, they can have extra facts in there that may make the answer that you give not accurate. I have had cross-examinations where when it's done, they made me say the earth was flat, the whole planet. So uh, uh, I appreciate your, uh, <laughs> your professional way you describe that. But on cross-examination, I have, I have been... I I feel like sometimes you're getting gaslighted. Like, I don't know, was I even on duty that day, the way that I got yeah. asked that question? So, I will say also the very first thing that you're going to get asked in court is to tell us your training background and qualifications. So you should have that prepared so that you can recite that eloquently. The more that you come in with confidence about who you are, your background, those sort of things, um, the more your credibility will be established in that courtroom. If you're stammering over uh, where you went to school, what you've done, um, how long you've been a doctor, those sort of things, what um, publications you read, those sort of things, uh, the defense is going to be like, maybe this person isn't very qualified. Maybe I should try to pick on them. But you already have an air of reliability as a doctor walking into the courtroom. People trust you, believe you, uh, and want to listen to you. So come in prepared, ready to give, I've been a doctor for so long, I've done here, this, that, and be proud of it. You should be proud of, of your work. Uh, a lot of times people will be more humble and don't want to talk about it. Be humble, but talk about it. So Chris, this can be significantly time-consuming. Do people charge for their percipient witness time, or how does that part work? So in general, percipient witnesses are not paid by the parties to come testify. Uh, it's their duty, really, to come in as a witness to come and testify. 
expert witnesses are a little bit different. Expert witnesses can be paid by the parties to come testify. An expert witness maybe would be somebody consulting on a case. Is this consistent with child abuse? Is this consistent with uh, abusive head trauma? Is this consistent with some other theory or hypothetical that might be given in court? So parties may hire an expert to come in and testify about how there's this interaction between uh, the facts given and what was seen uh, in the medical records. Uh, Many times those expert witnesses are not the treating physician. Uh, And of course, if you are the treating physician and you're called into court and they start asking you opinions, you you start to question, am I now an expert? I spent some time looking at this uh, because... Uh, there is a kind of a, a blurred line. And in civil cases, uh, it talks about, well, if they're original treating physician, but they're now giving an expert opinion, uh, they may not fall under the expert category. That applies to the civil world. I don't know what that means. They get paid or they don't get paid or uh, not. But what I, I do know in the criminal world, many times you're a treating physician and you are going to get asked some questions that maybe ask you to give a slight opinion. In general, you're probably not going to get paid for that. It's part of kind of your civic duty. When I was looking at this last night, thinking about it, uh, I decided to look up the Hippocratic Oath just for fun. And I saw the part that said, I will do no harm or injustice to them. And I thought about, well, does that extend beyond the hospital? And does that extend to making sure that justice is done to that patient for the shooting that they just received, for the stabbing that they just received, and making sure that it just doesn't end at the hospital? And then I saw that there's a physician's oath, which I didn't really know, uh, which says they'll, they'll concentrate their life to the care of the sick, the promotion of the health, and the service of humanity. And I again thought, thinking about, well, does the service of humanity end at the hospital or does it go straight to the courthouse too when we're asking doctors to come in and, and testify? Uh, certainly, uh, I hope it does and that the doctors will realize it's part of their civic duty to the community. Many times we do end up paying physicians to come in um, if they're being consulted as to opinions. Um, the, the classic expert witnesses, you know, we call in uh, doctors to describe child sexual abuse accommodation syndrome. Those doctors have nothing to do with the case. They don't even know the facts of the case. And they come in and give answers to hypotheticals uh, and uh, they're paid for their testimony, uh, the pay actually goes to the university versus to the actual doctors. Um, but those are true kind of expert witnesses. Physicians treating patients in the hospital uh, are going to be percipient. They'll probably be a little bit of an expert also. Some jurisdictions, the DA's office or the defense attorneys, uh, may end up paying some dollar amount to that, that person. The dollar amount uh, usually has to be something reasonable. So the the county kind of standard in Sacramento is that, um, you know, uh, any expert witness that the court appoints or that the public defender or DA's office has uh, can't go over $150 per hour um, without special approval. It doesn't mean that special approval hasn't been given. I've seen it in lots of cases uh, where it's appropriate uh, because it's a unique opinion. It's a necessary opinion. Uh, it needs to be brought in that case. Um, but in general, the the amount has to be reasonable. About, I want to say, uh, five, six years ago, uh, we had a DA in my office who was trying to subpoena someone from uh, a case involving a child that was burned. It was actually the nurse who we were trying to subpoena as a precipient witness. Uh, and uh, in the past, we'd often called the doctor of this uh, – burn hospital who would give opinion about the cause of the burn and uh, whether it was consistent with an accident or, or inflicted type burns. And I, and I want to say the doctor uh, would often charge around $300, $350 an hour for their in-court testimony. Um, this nurse who did not want to come told us that she wasn't coming. We told her it wasn't a party invitation. She had to come. Uh, then said, well, okay, I'm going to charge. And like, well, I, I don't think we're going to be able to pay that. She's like, well, I'm charging. And I'm like, well, what are you charging? And she told me $1,100 an hour. I'm like, where do you get $1,100 an hour? And, and she's like, well, that's my rate. And I'm like, how many times have you testified in court? And she's like, I've never testified in court. I'm like, well, it's a, you're a precipient witness, ma'am. You'll just have to come to court. You're going to get the $12 a day like every other civilian witness. 
most uh, people hopefully will um, recognize part of their civic duty. Can I clarify one angle to that? So sure. that's in a criminal trial. Yes. In a civil trial, you're allowed to charge what your wage would be. I know that you can't say I'm charging $25,000 for my testimony because you're not hiring me for my testimony. You're hiring me for an opinion. or And that in civil systems, I think we can, to clarify for the audience, I think that's when if, if it's two people suing each other and you did something, you can ask for your customer remunerate. Is that correct? That is correct. I actually spent some time looking that up too to confirm that too. So the civil world is definitely different um, and uh, reasonable compensation can be uh, paid to uh, the witnesses, um, which is usually typically consistent with um, their their normal wages. Um, expert witnesses in civil cases also can make a lot more uh, because the parties are uh, hiring expert witnesses. So uh, even expert witnesses, the rules are a little bit different in the civil world. A percipient witness is a witness who testifies to an experience they observed directly in everyday life. In the medical field, this is caring for patients in our normal care. This does not include our opinion as much as we may want to give it. It also does not include everything in the medical chart, just what you saw and did. When you get a subpoena, take a deep breath. Call the person who issued the subpoena, ask what issue they need you to testify to. Be sure they have all the medical records through the hospital. Figure out who, when, and even if you are needed. Before you go to court, review your records. Think through your qualifications to be prepared to say them in court. Essentially, our role is to educate about what you saw and did and how it applies to this case. Keep it simple and remember these are our terms. Cross-examination is when it gets tricky. Be intentional, listen closely, and watch out for extra facts within the question. Clear documentation can even resolve a case without you going in. It's worth your time in real time. Just be truthful. Stick to the truth and you will be fine. Remember, while it may not feel like it, you are not the one in the hot seat. I would add one last tip. Always call the day before to confirm that your testimony is still needed. Cases are often settled and the date is postponed, but sometimes they forget to let us know. One of our colleagues drove an hour plus only to sit in the lobby waiting for hours for something that was not happening. And in the end, he wasn't even needed. It was so painful. So share with us on Twitter your tips for being a recipient witness. You can show your support for our podcast by subscribing and leaving a review. And thank you to our department and thank you to OM Audio Productions for being there to decompress after the court sessions and not recording them. See y'all next time for part three on medical malpractice. (laughs) 